Welcome to episode 56 of the Camerosity Podcast, the world's number one open source film photography podcast. My name is Mike Ekman, and for this episode, the guys and I wanted to dedicate an entire episode to cameras from the former Soviet Union. Soviet cameras have been discussed in nearly every episode of this show, including the last one, where we covered mirror lenses and Rubens, but for the first time ever, we're going all red. Before we get to that, let's do some introductions. From the great state of Ohio, the man with more zenits than he has ladas is Mr. Paul Reibel. Hey, Paul, what is your best-selling Soviet camera? Well, you know, the thing is, I, I probably only have one, but I've sold it about 25 times because people keep returning it. Next, from Sydney, Australia, a city that's 14,500 kilometers from Moscow, is Mr. Theo Panagopoulos. Hey, Theo, didn't you used to work in Moscow? Yes, I spent a year there in uh, around 2000, which was um, quite interesting, um, and actually bought uh, my first Russian or Soviet camera, the beautiful Kiev 88. And finally, from Gainesville, Florida, a city where I couldn't come up with any Soviet jokes, <laughs> is Mr. Anthony Rue. Hey, Anthony, isn't Gainesville where Gatorade was invented? Oh, it certainly was. There's even a, a Cade Museum for Dr. Cade where you can actually visit a replica of the lab where the lightning struck and Gatorade was invented. Tonight, we are going to talk about Soviet cameras in the Soviet industry with two special guests. The first is my personal friend and esteemed Soviet camera collector, Vladislav Kern. Welcome to the show, Vlad. Hello. Hello. <laughs> hey, guys. Good to, good to be here. It's been quite a while since you've been on the show. You were on some of our earlier episodes. Since the last time you are on the show, our listenership has grown quite a bit from the Facebook group that we're all pretty commonly posting in. Um, so why don't you do a quick introduction of yourself, your site, um, for anybody who doesn't know who you are. Yeah, I'm Vlad Kern. Um, I run the site called USSRphoto.com, which is uh, used to be a Fairly popular forum. Now Facebook overtook it, so it's kind of sits there in the archival capacity, but you can still interact there. I've been a collector of Soviet cameras for close to 20 years. I'm at about 1,400 pieces right now of different Soviet cameras. So I pretty much collect everything Soviet, pre-Soviet, post-Soviet, uh, anything from like uh, all uh, 15 republics that were part of uh, USSR and pretty much with anything with a Cyrillic writing on them. So this is one of my other things. And obviously, I kind of got suckered into collecting all the new Lomography stuff because it's just very cool. Only the stuff that kind of resembles the Soviet stuff. So like all the clones of like LCA, the LCA pluses and all the whites and all the instant backs. And that's kind of been a fun trip also. But uh, yeah, um, I'm I'm on Instagram as USSR Photo. I pretty much uh, post my... Uh, collection um as soon as stuff arrives so if you guys are interested in seeing some of the exotic soviet stuff uh head over there awesome well welcome also joining us all the way from the united kingdom is soviet collector and user mark beetle welcome to the show mark hello there everyone you want to introduce yourself real quick yeah so um i'm uh, mark beetle obviously from the uk and um i do a lot of shooting with soviet cameras much to be pain uh but it is enjoyable there's not really much to say for us other than that okay well, welcome. Also here is returning uh, frequent listeners and speakers and guests, Mark Faulkner and Ray Nason. Uh, welcome back, guys. Hey, good evening. Hello. Good evening. All right. So, um, you know, I mean, it, it wouldn't be something I was involved in if there wasn't a little bit of history. So I kind of thought a good place to start on this show, uh, maybe Vlad, you can kind of walk us through this, is one notable difference about the Soviet camera industry compared to you know, the Germans or the Japanese or the Americans is Canon, Nikon, Leica, Zeiss, Argus, Kodak. Those are all companies. 
American, German, and Japanese cameras were made by companies that wanted to sell them and make money. In the Soviet industry, there really weren't companies. There were factories. And there were different factories. Like in, in the Ukraine, you had the Arsenal factory, which is where the Kievs were made. And that was um, like a, a former armory dating back, what, to like the 1700s or something like that? Is that right? Yeah, close to that. Yeah, it's been there for a long time. There was a Tsarist uh, armory factory, yeah. factory for all the cannons and all the weaponry. KMZ, uh, you know, outside of Moscow, which is where the Zenits and the Zorkis came from, didn't even make cameras until after the war. So a lot of these factories did other things and, and they, they were moved into making cameras. They moved out of making cameras. Sometimes you would even have a model that was so popular, the same model would be made by different factories. So you could have a, a Zenit that's made in one factory, and then you could have a, a Zenit that's made somewhere else com completely just to help pick up the demand. Could you speak to like why it is that way? Like, What was different about the Soviet Union to where you'd have these factories that were just making cameras? Well, first of all, there were there were not the factories making cameras <laughs> so most of these were state sponsored uh factories that for the most part produce military stuff and the cameras were really kind of like a cover so uh, and on a lot of these factories camera production was only consisted of about like five to ten percent of the entire production so but when people were asked hey what do you do at this factory and like we make cameras when in reality they're making uh military optics uh basically like missile component components any kind of uh, optical stuff for military tank sites and anything you can think of. Uh, but uh, the fun things about this, well, fun things, but uh, the interesting things, I guess, to, 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 of collecting Soviet stuff because all these factories were pretty much top secret, most of the production. So the cameras also fell onto the same umbrella. So a lot of the archives of for all the camera production were pretty much secret so there's not a lot of documentation only the stuff a lot of the stuff was just the collectors uh sponsored information basically so everything collectors were able to scrounge up and post on the web or keep it in the records or write books about it um they or somebody some enthusiast after the collapse of soviet union decided to go through archives uh they were classified uh during soviet union and started like putting the stuff out on the web so there's nothing like the Leica when you have like a catalog of serial numbers or all these cameras that you, if you have a Leica, then you basically always find it in the catalog. With Soviet cameras, uh, you don't know what you're going to find. I mean, we find stuff that nobody knew existed. And I still have a few things on, on my shelf that nobody ever heard of. And they're like one of a kind. And they're obviously factory made prototypes, but nobody knows. Absolutely. No information whatsoever about them it's almost like playing a detective if you collecting soviet cameras because you really have to dig for information and it's probably that's what attracted me to this hobby and that's probably why i'm not interested with any other cameras about soviet i mean it's very interesting history i mean it's dark history but uh it's getting darker actually <laughs> but year over year in the last couple of years if you guys follow the news but uh it's uh it's nevertheless it's history i think it's worth collecting finding soviet stuff it's really exciting because you see stuff that people worked on uh that spend their lives on uh designing constructing and uh it and it went under somebody's uh couch in some chest you know and then finally their relatives found it and brought it out to light and it turned out to be some very amazing like amazing technically uh, prototype for the for the 
time that when it was constructed. So because of it was all state sponsored, a lot of this was just not accessible to public. I mean, the the cameras themselves in Soviet Union were viewed as a means to propaganda. I mean, that's how the camera industry was started in the 20s. Uh, Lenin basically said, what's going on? Uh, we need to get to people with uh, the, to, be, to get the word to people to promote communism. So let's start taking pictures, uh, start up some factories and start making cameras uh, domestically and spread it to the people. And uh, let's let's use those pictures to spread the communism throughout the world. Uh, that's really kind of how it all got kickstarted. And this was like the main idea behind the Soviet people having cameras. Vlad, if I, if I can ask you a question that I've always been, I've been curious about. Mm-hmm. And in like pre-1990 Soviet Union, if you yep. were, um, let's say, a young college student, you were interested in taking photographs and you wanted a, a Fed 3, would you just go to a state store and find a Fed 3? Or would it be that you go to the state store and you take whatever it is they made that month? Yeah, I mean, some of the cameras, so a lot of the cameras that are they're metal and leather basically cameras not the plastic ones like smanas first of all they were expensive a lot of them were just sitting on the shelf and nobody was buying them uh the ones that were in demand they did fl- fly off the shelves so you have to kind of go through different stores and find them so there was definitely a de- deficit on some stuff if you're a student you're most likely to pick up uh like a like a smana camera it depends on the time period you were looking for but i mean the smanas were always like yeah there you go Theo got one. Uh, it's a Smana ATM. <laughs> so yeah, those were like 15 rubles. And I mean, you, you can basically save up your little stipend and get one. And they actually took amazing pictures, the ATM. The, the lens on it is absolutely fantastic. It is great, actually. They're a lot of fun. Yeah, the the lens is surprisingly sharp with the color film. And I mean, I actually like it with some more than some of the zenits. I mean, it's like the, the pictures are just, just colors are just beautiful. I mean, would there have been like photo clubs or would people have developed oh, their own film or send them off or? Yeah, there was a lot of uh, photo clubs. So, I mean, and most of the people I know for black and white, um, including my family, were, 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 were basically closing shades at night uh, with uh, some blankets and developing stuff in the kitchen or in the bathroom. I would set up the uh, enlargers, and uh, my dad would take off the the lens of his Fat Three and screw it into the enlarger because it's the only one had like one lens to share between the two devices and uh, basically print pictures that way. Uh, but yeah, the, we did have a photo store right across the street from us that would develop color film because color film some some enthusiasts would do it, but the chemicals chemicals were scarce, like already made chemicals, so. Uh, some people, for example, like my father-in-law would go to a chemistry store instead. So and they, he would actually mix his old chemicals. He would go on like with a list and he was, I think he was like 10 years old or 11 years old. He would come up with a big, li- with a list, uh, to, uh, to a store clerk and saying like, I need this, like whatever potassium nitrate. I don't know. I, I don't know chemistry guys. So <laughs> he would give you a, like a very like exhaustive list for like color film development. And they would like, they would look at him like, Hey, what does this kid want with all these chemicals? And uh, he would go home and mix it up based on proportions and uh, just develop stuff like basically from elemental chemistry. But yeah, because some of the stuff was super expensive, pre-mixed, and uh, people were basically inventing inventive ways to uh, develop film. I think people were like even like recording their own film or something like that. I mean, there's just like there's like doing some crazy stuff i mean it's uh one of the things in soviet union was like people like really knew how to recycle things 
So there was like no, nothing would ever get thrown out. Everything was getting fixed. I mean, I would never know a person who would own like 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 a, like an iron, for example, for ironing clothes, and they would have it for like tens of years. And like if it breaks, I mean, they would they would try to fix it. They had like manuals. Like uh, actually, the Soviet Union was pretty good about repair manuals and everything. Like literally everything. There was a lot of publications, a lot of magazines you could subscribe to, and tells you how to make your own things. So like you see, if you go to eBay, you will see a whole ton of these kind of stereos menace uh that were like basically two cameras just kind of glued together uh can the the mechanisms correct connected with a little like metal rod and uh they'll solder together so it's, so it's all synchronous uh syn synchronous shutters all this stuff was basically those are magazine that would basically have articles telling you how to make those a guy you might might have heard of eisen meiserberg so he uh he he actually released uh, he moved to us and he lived in Skokie, illinois which hilariously uh one of my relatives bought a house from him and lived in that house <laughs> but he was one of the most prolific writers on photograph photographic subject uh in soviet union and he was a very famous repairman and he like all the repair guides most of the repair guides were written by him so it was like multiple editions uh, of these repair guides and uh, he would write articles in his magazine saying how to like build your own camera, or how to build your own stereo mana, how to like do a lot of things from scratch. I mean, the the society was very frugal, uh, so because there's just a lot, of, there was a deficit of everything. So it was pretty interesting. Some of some of the homemade cameras I find is one of my topics of collection too. It's just absolutely mind-boggling stuff that you find like this and and some of this incredibly high quality like like i have a fat three that's a large format uh, with the bellows and uh, like some kind of uh, range finder attached on the top and they use all different parts from different cameras it's a totally crazy thing and with an enlarger lens no no, no less so <laughs> it's wow. it's a very interesting environment so yes they would develop develop stuff in the house people who could afford it will go to stores but obviously black and white film was uh the go-to because it was most mostly accessible and the chemicals were mostly accessible uh, although the same some of the earliest film film would uh be so thick i don't know if i told the story on the air before but um you couldn't use it on practical cameras because it completely grind down the gears on it because they were plastic so uh it, it's, wait wait you said the film was thick the film was so thick i mean they would call it like a oak quality film you know okay. <laughs> it was like very thick and like wow. it was like it was really hard to move it so the transfer mechanism they had plastic sprockets uh it, it would just it would just grind it would just grind down the gears this film after like uh, some some heavy use and most of the cameras got some heavy use it's funny you mentioned that because uh the leningrad which was the the wind up motor motor drive camera um that has such an abrupt and strong film transport that you have the opposite problem if you put thin film thin base film in it'll just shred it like, oh yeah it will actually snap the film in half because the film advance is so strong in that so there was it was made for your thick film yeah, it's made it's made for Soviet film because that stuff was indestructible. You can probably tow a car with it. Blood, in, in, your, in your introduction, you mentioned, and I might have misheard for the pre pre Soviet cameras. Yeah, so the um, there was a lot of some of the cameras. So there's a few cameras that were made uh, during the Tsarist Russia, uh, and the Tsarist Russia would 
so the Ukraine was also part of Russia before the uh, before the revolution. So it was uh, there was a lot of companies that would import uh, also the cameras into uh, into imperial imperial Russia, and they would put their like little plagues on them that had like uh, a name of the importer, and it's all like in an old like Russian font with all these like characters that are not used anymore. So it's kind of cool. Uh, and there was a, a few pretty big importers. One was in Kharkov, which is now Ukraine. But, but so one of them was in Kharkov. One, a few of them were in Russia. So you would find a lot of the like French, uh, uh, German cameras. That, some of the American cameras that had these import tags on them. So that's one of my topics. But there were a few constructors in the uh, Imperial Russia uh, territory, basically, that were uh, producing some original cameras. And mostly they were wooden pieces. So um, I don't think there's any metal pieces that were made there. Those are very, very rare. Like Karpov was one of the designers um, in, in Imperial Russia in about turn of the turn of the 20th century that would uh, actually create his own cameras. He, he actually made a reflex camera almost like a, like a Graflex, but it was uh, wooden. It was large format. And there's a few examples and the kind of museum pieces. So coming back to something that you had said earlier, so in the in the um, in the fifties and sixties and maybe into the seventies, the cameras like the uh, uh, you know the, the the Barnett copies and the and the contacts copies, those mm-hmm. were almost those were primarily for export. Well, the cam- a lot of the cameras were export just because Soviet Union was in dire need of hard currency. So uh, where were they going? I mean, were they going to? East Germany, or were they going to Australia? Pretty much anywhere where you can get hard currency. So they were going. They were going to Australia under. So, t- so basically, there was this entity called Mashpreboring Torg, and the Mashpreboring Torg was was the entity made for international trade for Soviet Union, and and that entity was basically KGB. Uh, and uh, they worked with uh, a big distributor in London called TOE London, Technical Optical Equipment London, and which also employed a lot of KGB. Uh, so that entity was the main, they would get these exported cameras. They were, a lot of the time they had their own technicians that would refurbish them. And then you had different international entities buying f- from TOE London. So for example, in US, uh, there was Kalimar, that uh, already towards the end of the 1970s were buying uh, massive amounts of Zenits from uh, POE London. And uh, they would rebrand them, they would call more signs on them, or they would um, have like, actually through TOE, through my spring boring talk, they would order custom silk screening that would say Calamar on, on, on the cameras. Plus, they would also resell them to Quantaray to as a Ritz camera. Yeah, uh, that's a Ritz camera. Right, so they would resell them. So they actually made the signs that, that under the name Delta One, and uh, re- and they would make the signs for them. They would brand them. The Calamari would, would sell them already branded to uh, Quantaray. Also, Cambridge, uh, I think it's Connecticut, New York, yeah, and New the, York, the, yeah, right. Cambridge. So the Cambron brand. So they would also rebrand them as Cambrons. The Calamari, and they would sell them to Cambridge. Uh, so there's a number of like different entities. This is just U.S. So then there's Australia, um, the, the global brand that they would re-engrave as global. So the Australians were probably getting it from TOA as well. There's tons of Zenits and the different names. UK, Mark, what was the UK ones? Mark, what was what were the UK Zenits? There was a Prince Flex, right? And there was also the... Yeah, 
there's a there's a Prince Flex. Um, the well, it was Globals doing the rounds as well, going through Dixons. So they they are obviously quite often related to like Australia, but they see, they seem to find the way into the UK market and. Yeah. Uh, and there was the SLX, right? The Zenith SLX that was also like... Uh, yes, SLX. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm the, I'm the I think I have an entire bookshelf with about five shelves full of different brand-lit Zeniths for different countries. I mean, there's there's tons of Japanese ones too, like Mepro, Mepro Zenith, E-Pro. Uh, if they're all the same, like Zenith E, Zenith EM, and Zenith B in some cases, uh, they're just basically rebranded for different countries. Some of them just like little stickers on them like some of them some are te- some are like metal text some of them actually uh custom seal screening uh france had the fokina uh zenit um rx2 i believe those canadian ones too <laughs> so it's quite quite there's quite a few and uh brazil was actually making their own parts and they were actually slapping them onto build <laughs> onto the belarusian zenit so it's quite an industry i have a question from mark beetle um so you know, going back pre-Soviet Union collapsing, I, I don't think, or at least it was very rare to see a Soviet camera in the United States. I don't think too many ever made it here, um, other than maybe the Calamars, like you had mentioned. But my understanding is in the UK, it was much easier to find Soviet cameras or even some like East German cameras. Is that right? Was that like the entry level camera would be something Soviet or East German? Definitely. Pretty much everybody started with a Zenit. Uh, every loft has got at least one in. And it's, uh, I think it's quite telling. Well, marketplace is pretty saturated with them. So you know, zenits are compared, to, like to the Japanese, are fairly rudimentary, but they're they're very stout cameras. You know, they can take uh, a lot of abuse, and and they're like Vlad said. You know, people would fix a lot of their own cameras. So I would assume that it would, if one went bad, it wasn't that hard to get working again. So what was like the the general reputation of Soviet camera stuff? Was it you know cheap but good, or did people did like professional photographers sort of look down upon people who use Soviet cameras? I think everybody always looked and thought like like Nikon and Canon were the best, but nobody really told, turned the nose up to it. I think people really like admired the people with the guilt to actually go and get the camera, use it, repair it, and then they would obviously they would always look to move on afterwards. It was a respectable way to get started in photography if you didn't yeah. have a lot of money or just didn't really have the aspirations to be a pro. Exactly, yeah. Okay. Is that because uh, the the actual cameras that were exported were aimed at getting mass market? So it what wouldn't necessarily be the the better quality Soviet cameras because obviously the the, the ranges varied. So that's why that you would get that reputation where you'd have like in the UK Dixons and the catalog place um was it argus would be selling those you'd have hanamax rebranding here as well some of them as well yeah is is that kind of the strategy that the soviet camera makers were actually aiming at to try and just get mass market i think it looked that way to me i think Vlad will answer that better but it certainly seemed that way they wanted us to have as many people holding their cameras in their hands as possible yeah because the the soviet currency was kind of artificially inflated the labor was fairly cheap so all the stuff was exported i mean for in in uk or us i mean you would get for like 70 pounds or 70 dollars you could get like leather metal camera where a comparable like can nikon or canon would be about 300 400 bucks and if you look at the on paper <laughs> specs would be like very very similar in some of the things so i mean they kind of people a lot of people gravitated towards kind of getting like a 
nice sturdy looking camera for a good price just as a starter camera and uh the soviets could produce them in pretty big quantity especially zenit e's i mean they were made like in millions i think about close to like five million or something like that and a lot of them were exported so and it was actually a really good camera i mean people i still like see helios lenses being sold for crazy amount of money at this point and they only going up in price so i mean you would get a hell of a camera for a fraction of the price so and that, that's exactly what i was thinking as well i mean the lens the lenses itself speaks for itself doesn't it it's like it's the zeiss design and people wanted find that perfect niche where they were like we're paying enough where you were happy with the quality, but you wanted that like decent quality lens, and you were getting a lot more for your money from the Soviet camera. Are, are the uh, are those Zeniths? I'm not that familiar with them. Are they primarily M42 mount? Primarily, yes, M42, M39 for the older ones. Uh, there's a few proprietary mounts, like the Start has like kind of like an exacta type of mount on it. Not quite, so you can't really fit it on it, but it's very similar. Uh, some of them have the K mount, later later ones. So Paul just showed one today with a K mount. Do you have it in front of you, Paul? I have the 212 and the 412. The 212 is thread mount. Is the 412 uh, K mount? The one that says K after it, the 212 is the K mount. It's a 212K. Yeah, so that that will be the K mount. And it's interesting because um, later, you didn't see it too much early on, but the Soviet photo industry eventually did adopt the Japanese mounts, like the Pentax mount. Some of the later Kiev SLRs actually use the Nikon F mount. So you can get Soviet cameras with um, K-mount bayonets, uh, the Nikon bayonets, and and a few of their own proprietary ones. Yeah, this is K-mount. It's a 212K. The 412 is thread mount, which... Seems a little odd to me, but I guess that they were making them both mounts. Because they made so many more lenses and the M42 mounts, so they don't want to like lock people into K-mount. There was like very, very few K-mount lenses in uh, like USSR or like former territories. Because what you have there is actually a camera like from Russia or, or at this point. It was made like in the early 2000s. So at, at, at that point, like a lot of people had like tons of M42 lenses and K-mounts were kind of a little bit hard harder to get <laughs> so so when, when the factory made like zenits for do they make cameras specifically for export and different uh, quality levels of control uh they did have a separate assembly line they did try to do higher quality for export just because they cared more about like their reputation ab- ab- abroad but the stuff that was going to like toe they knew it's gonna get like refurbished anyways before it got sold uh so some of the stuff i mean they would they would actually re-CLA these cameras once they got them the, the toe before they sold them they would like go through their own quality control well the reason i asked because i didn't sell them but i i had access to the to the zenits through calamar mm-hmm. calamar was a, a distributor in the u.s and and honestly i i didn't sell a lot of them but i don't recall there being a lot of problems they were relatively sturdy camera. They were heavy. Um, yeah. But back in that time period, a lot of cameras were heavy. I don't remember them being exceptionally primitive. Do you, Ray, do you remember back in those days? You know, we we kind of shied away from those. We had an awful lot being so close to New York City um, that a lot of the, uh, the, you know, the popular catalog stores in New York would really push either their brand or the Zenit brand. I had quite a few used. I had a better relationship with one of my customers his dad worked for a certain film manufacturing company that was based near boston 
that was going back and forth to Moscow uh, often, and he would bring me Kiev 60s, Kiev 88s, Solets for like $10 a piece. It was wow. crazy just how, how cheap it was. And he's like, yeah, look at it. I brought your camera. You got 10 bucks? Sure. All the time. So what was your impression of them when you saw these things? I mean, for 10 bucks. They were awesome. Are you kidding? Yeah. Even yeah. today's standards. The, the first one I saw, I had a customer. He was, and I'm, I can't remember his name, but he was a very famous stamp collector from Moscow. And he came over and wrote his book and did his memoirs. And he brought one of his relatives in with a Kiev 60 with the 80, with the 30 fisheye, with a 120, and uh, they wanted to sell it to me, but he wanted like, you know, $10,000. And I'm like, you're <laughs> crazy. I think I bought it for a hundred bucks, but the negotiation was really cool. The optics are remarkable. The build quality was really, really quite good. And I did think, I was told that the way that the camera was on the Kievs anyway, if it was in Cyrillic, it wasn't for export. If it was in more of a Roman style lettering, it was for export. That's correct. And that's, you know, that's that's the way I looked at it in my time frame. I know I have a lot of feds, a lot of Zorkies that are kind of the same deal that that, you know, have Cyrillic on them. And I was always under the illusion that those were not for export. That's correct. Yeah, actually, you would find a lot of the Latin script ones uh, outside of uh, former Soviet Union. Yes. Uh, but they did. I mean, sometimes it's supplemented with the regular Cyrillic versions as well, just if they were running out, running out of uh, running out of them. But Kiev's are like amazing cameras. I mean, they Arsenal did a really good job. And uh, well, when the when when the USSR fell apart and Ukraine was trying to kind of privatize all the fa factories, uh, Arsenal was trying to like really push the Kievs because I mean they kind of ended up like in a in an open market and uh, a free market that had a lot of competition at the point from all the Japanese brands. So we're trying to like stand out themselves and the quality was a little bit subpar. So they were actually, they uh, spun off a few entities. Uh, like for example, there was a, I don't know if you're familiar in US, there was a company called Kiev USA. Yes, Saul Kaminsky. Yeah. I knew Saul very well. So they, he actually had uh, a series of, uh, from people working from Arsenal that, so they would actually move to US from Arsenal and uh, refurbishing cameras here. And they would put like close shutters on them. They would uh, reduce some of the uh, mechanics. And those, if you find those cameras with the cameras with those little Kiev USA tags on them, they're the especially the 60s and the 88s and the 88 CMs. They're just fantastic cameras. I mean, right now is the only one entity like that that's left. I think is uh, Arex. I think Herblay was also around, but I don't think they. I think they're done. I remember yeah. looking at their website a, a year or two ago, and they. I think they're done. Or they, they seem to be more doing lenses now, hot light, don't they? No, oh, um, okay. Yeah, I, I've got to say that the the Arax cameras are amazing. Yeah, it's like day and night between the. They'll the even Arax improve them. Like a... Won't they? Won't Arax add yeah. features that weren't originally on them? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah like a mirror lock. Yeah. Yeah, the mirror lock up, and you got the standard Pentacon mounts on those because uh, they're like the CMs. So they could install those, and they do all the. I mean, I I have a black uh, Arax. Uh, it's I think it's an eighty eight CM with an M. The mirror lock up on it. It's absolutely fantastic camera. I mean, like I actually shot a wedding with it. It was uh, the pictures came out like really really nicely. And it's operated as smooth as. Like any any kind of hassle, but and actually I was walking with it for the parking lot, and this this guy just like see me like carrying this thing, and they're like, "Oh, Hasselblatsky," <laughs> <laughs> you know. So that was kind of funny. Uh, they recognize what I had on my hands, 
but uh yeah fantastic cameras and eric's still doing a great job so uh they're still around uh they're still really active on social media so i mean they would refurbish your camera you can get cameras directly from them uh, they also fix um any kind of uh modern key of cameras and uh, people are really really happy with their productions well the only relics that's kind of remnant still and still like nice and alive and kicking and, and doing a really good job so <laughs> they also machine parts yeah they make uh they make a lot of adapters and uh various other things that uh are not just for the soviet cameras but for other other mounts no really okay yeah wonderful stuff i mean very very high quality machining machine tool shop work yeah i mean these are all ex-arsenal guys the highly skilled guys i'm saying yeah yeah i believe they all came out of arsenal so all these guys are like used to work at arsenal at some point until the arsenal kind of closed down uh there's really like nothing left of that factory right now they're 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 demolishing it and they were before the war started they started um on the territory they started building these uh very expensive high-rise like posh condos uh towers because it's like a very prime real estate in the center of kiev by the river so it has it has the view and basically that it's like basically any developer's dream so they started basically demolishing all the old uh workshops and um at some point unfortunately uh some of the stuff that they had in archives uh they said that it's still classified even after the collapse of soviet union so all the all a lot of the a lot of the literature a lot of the cameras that they they had like their prototypes they just basically went under press everything was burned it was just it's just a travesty i mean it, some of the guys that were there telling me the stories it was just absolutely they were just watching all this priceless documents and stuff just kind of being burned just because of the bureaucracy um it was very very unfortunate all that uh information that then went with it was also lost so that's the problem about the soviet industry that the information was very hard to come by and you kind of a lot of this word of mouth <laughs> and then you stuff gets like proven uh and disproven like pretty much every day well you were, we were talking about you know photography for the for the masses basically mm -hmm. in service to the in service to the state the motion picture industry would have been much more much more valuable so was there was there a state photography agency aside from TAS? was there was there something that where the state used photography and developed it for them for those work for that sort of purpose so motion picture stuff if you're talking about movie cameras yes um it was like the professional stuff was very specialized there were a few like very expensive like uh cameras like canvas and and the optics were like, ridiculous they, they go for like ten thousand dollars right now because they're really popular in hollywood right now if you if you put out like some lomo like oks uh, lens and if you if you look for Lomo OKS lens on eBay, I mean you will see the prices because the for some reason it's very highly regarded in Hollywood and they actually shoot a lot of movies with them, uh, especially some of the anamorphic anamorphic stuff. A lot of the stuff very specialized, so it wasn't geared towards the masses. It's kind of it was made in very small quantities, so it's kind of hard to get and was kind of procured for these movie studios that were shooting. Plus, a lot of a lot of these companies would get uh western equipment to do that as well because uh some of the just when when they wanted highest quality they will go to western equipment same with, with publications i know i know a few journalists that were they were basically bought nikon's cannons uh and that was during the soviet times just they would get like special fund for high quality pictures for magazines they would go to western equipment 
yes, they had like a whole arsenal of all the Soviet cameras. And I know a lot of people that use practicas. Uh, so practical lenses on Zenit, on Zenit cameras because they, the practical bodies couldn't follow, uh, couldn't uh, stand up to a Soviet film. Uh, but there was a special fund, I guess, to get higher quality stuff. Paul, I would say that, you know, going back to the 1920s and 30s, you know, the, the USSR was, uh, you know, such a largely sprawling and, and, and considerably illiterate country that the leadership saw motion pictures as a way to communicate to the masses what the Soviet Union was about. And so they would right. hire filmmakers like uh, Ziga Vertov. Uh, they had propaganda trains where they would go out with these trains and shoot sort of documentary footage in the day of like a factory at work or workers in a field. And then at night, the train would pull into town and they'd crank out the projector projected on a sheet on the side of the train and the whole town would come out and watch what was going on. And then they saw motion pictures as a way not only to, to spread the uh, idea of Sovietism in the country, but also as an export as well. So there was always a lot of privilege to the motion picture industry that I don't think that the, the still photography uh, industry had. I mean, I'd heard stories of uh, even like, you know, when things got pretty tough under Stalin and there was a period where, where Stalin saw this as so important that he personally had to approve every script that was filmed and it choked the Soviet film industry down from producing, you know, several hundred films a year to doing like 20 films a year. Uh, but they, um, you know, there were, there were, there were state film schools. They uh, were using a lot of French equipment to shoot with. Um, yeah. And it was, it was always given uh, sort of a high priority as the, you know, like the, one of the most effective tools in the propaganda quiver that they had um so so there's like a big difference between the the film industry and the the, the still camera industry in the west no one knew a russian photographer a soviet photographer but they knew who potemkin they knew who Sergei eisenstein was they knew <laughs> yeah. about potemkin they knew the films yeah because they were they were so beautifully done and they were i mean they were art and and i don't know how much service they were to the to the to the state, but they were certainly, uh, well, they were, they were seen as a massive, massive service to the state. But I, I would argue that people knew who Rodchenko was. People knew that, yeah. I mean, there, cause there were enough Soviet photographers that were like crossover to Bauhaus in Germany in the 1930s. Okay. That, 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 you know, the, there was a certain Soviet style of photography that is still influential, maybe not as well known as, you know, Cartier Bresson and, and, and the European, but they, they were, there some brilliant, brilliant Soviet photographers. Yeah, but as to equipment, uh, in pre pre war times, I mean, um, none of these guys used Soviet equipment. <laughs> there were very, very few. I mean, I know Rochenko used the Leica, so I mean, I don't think he ever used the Soviet camera. Uh, so, so the motion picture guys, I mean, there was like, in terms of movie cameras, there was only like a couple that were made and they were like in uh, single digits. So, Vlad, you know, for how important the propaganda was and for the Soviet government to get their message out. But then there were all these talented people shooting French German equipment. Is that really what the motivation was in the 30s to start reproducing like us? You know, we know today, you know, most collectors who are familiar with Soviet cameras, we know about feds and we know about right. Zorkies. But there were other Leica copies that started production in the 30s that didn't really last. But isn't it true that the government was like, we must make our own? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there was too many people in USSR, and there was a huge shortage with equipment and with the uh, communists being kind of like 
go, going up in scale and USSR being getting more more and more isolated during the years leading up to World War II. I mean, the the, the stuff the trickling to to Soviet Union was kind of very limited, so they had to start make doing their own production. And so the Leicas were like in the in the nineteen. 30s they basically said like we we, we want these different uh, entities to uh, com- to come up with a like alternative there was the Voom, Voom, uh that was, that was making a prototype then the, the, the Fed was making a product yeah the Voom pioneer the, the, and there was a, a fog a fag uh that was making a, a, a prototype and they were up for uh like kind of state review and uh, so there's only like a few a few of the quantities of the other ones, uh, but the Fed was the one that was given basically the state contract to make these just because uh, I don't know how true it is that they had like the cheap labor because it was basically based on the children's commune. They still had the adult designers and, and the constructors, but the children were kind of helping helping out the, in, in the... Um, in the workshops, I mean, they were kind of put to work to do like kind of some of the assembly line work. Uh, but they saw this as like a big opportunity to kind of get something started with some like existing infrastructures in place because those guys were already making electric drill drills at Fed, so they already had the work, mechanical workshops. So they started basically, uh, they gave the production to Fed, and the other ones are just kind of exist in uh, maybe double digits uh, copies uh, that collectors are really running after. I mean, I think one was sold for hundred thousand dollars. They the wow. one of the uh, board time. Uh, of pioneers that mounts on a photo sniper on a prototype FS3 photo sniper that were they went in Aus- Vienna auction for yeah, it was about hundred thousand. <laughs> so wow. this stuff gets up there in price just because of scarcity, but it's, it's pretty, uh, yeah. So and, and then after the war, because there was even more demand for cameras, they, they the kind of the production got picked up by KMZ in Krasnogorsk near Moscow, so they started the parallel. Zor- Fed Zorkin and eventually Zorki production. Actually, during uh, the post-war, there was also uh, Arsenal Factory that tried to make Fed as well. It's a very little-known fact. There was a camera called Fed Arsenal. Oh, really? With yeah, with an Arsenal logo on top of it. Um, I think I know only about single-digit quantity of these that existed. Very very scarce camera, but uh, it never went anywhere because Kiev was given. Uh, the Dresden and Yena factory stuff to build uh, contact copies. So they kind of abandoned the whole Fed, Fed idea and started building their own. You've touched on a couple of different things I want to ask you about, but there's so many things to talk about. I don't want to dominate the discussion, but we know that Fed was a, a commune where orphans lived. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, so out West, our knowledge of the Soviet camera industry was almost nothing. Very, very little really even was known here until the years after the Soviet Union fell. So, you know, we can look up on the internet a lot of this stuff and sites like yours and mine and at least find bits and pieces of these stories. But I think the first stories that came out about the Fed factory is it was literally like Little Orphan Annie was putting together Fed cameras. And, and while that might be true, it, wasn't it more like a trade school? You know, these these kids live there. And yeah. they were fed and, and, and clothed and everything, but they had to give something back. So they were taught a trade and they were right. Is that is that correct? Right. So th- this was really the um, the street urchins that uh, that was a big problem in the 30s in, in USSR. They had a lot of street urchins that were basically causing a lot of crimes on the street. They were stealing, pickpocketing and, uh, and all sorts of stuff, <laughs> having like uh, juvenile gangs. So they basically decided to kind of... Uh, 
get these kids off the street, put them in commune. And <clears throat> there was a guy who was like a very famous uh, edu educator, uh, Anton Makarenko, and he had his own, his own like work and study type of philosophy that he basically employed in this commune. Uh, so they would they would basically study and work at the same time, uh, manufacturing various things. So they started with as, as I said with the drills, and then they went into like assembling the fed cameras. So yes, it's true the little kids were making fads, but yeah, no, not not really true because they were yes they were making doing some some of the aspects of the assembly, but there were definitely adult factory workers there. You had to work your way up to yeah. it, right? Like you had to yeah, show yeah. up. All right, an aptitude right. to be able to put. Okay, that's and that's kind of what I thought. I am sure that by today's modern working conditions, what they were subjected to is probably pretty pretty cruel. But I, I'm I, sure. I, I that, don't know. Here in the U.S., they're rolling back minimum wage for uh, yeah factory work to fourteen. <laughs> so I was gonna say, you know, we were sending children down in coal mines in the '30s. You know, oh, working yeah. twelve-hour days too. So I feel like there's a little bit of like adjustment to be made, like these kids and, and young people that were putting together these cameras, you know, the alternative was they were homeless on the street, you know, right. but at least they had a home, at least they had a meal. They were taught something. I'm, I'm not trying to like make it sound super noble, but I don't think it's quite as sinister as some of the early versions of the story kind of made it out to be. Well, well now, now, now in Arkansas, you can have a 14 year old, you know, cleaning the rendering vat at the uh, Swift uh, slaughterhouse. A side story is the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago has a wonderful coal mine exhibit. It's actually one of their oh, yeah. original exhibits. Uh, they relocated bits and pieces of an actual coal mine uh, into a base, basically a basement of the museum in Chicago. And you could take a, a coal uh, mine elevator. It's really, really cool. If, if you've ever been to Chicago, go to the Museum of Science and Industry, check out the coal mine exhibit. But anyway, so I took my two kids down there about a year ago. My daughter, who, who's six at the time, when, when like a week after we had done this, right? So it's like you're, you kind of think they forgot about it. And, and my daughter comes up to me and goes, Daddy, when I'm older, I don't want to work in a coal mine. And, <laughs> and I was like, why? Like, what, what made you think of that? And she goes, those kids were probably very dirty. <laughs> and I just, I laughed, you know, there's that innocence of a kid, but like, you know, they were telling us like in that tour that children were down there, you know, mm -hmm. and there was dust everywhere. And these people would, they'd have these lamps that if the flame turned blue run, uh, cause there was methane down there and stuff like that. So, and this was in America. So to think that, you know, it, at the same time in Ukraine, you had these factories and the, and, you know, these people were building cameras and drills and, and stuff that was actually useful. I think it's kind of cool. I need to ask, does the homework situation now become like, do your homework or otherwise you'll end up in the coal the mine? Coal mine? Yeah. You know, I, I haven't <laughs> had you do that yet, but you know what? I think that's good. Yeah. Or, <laughs> or if they, if they don't take the dishes out, you know, I'm like, all right, you have to scoop some coal. <laughs> oh, Theo, Theo's turning into Anton Makarenko here. <laughs> <laughs> Vlad, I've got a question I'm curious about. As somebody who's a Soviet camera collector, do you consider like the sphere of influence? Do you consider the East German cameras, the Czech cameras, and that one Hungarian camera to be part of the Soviet uh, no. camera sphere, or is it? Mm, I don't. They so. I mean, I consider the core Soviet republics. These were just influence. Yeah, the Eastern Bloc. So, what is that mic showing? What is that thing? It's the Hungarian camera. It's the Mometa three. <laughs> I knew there was one. Nice. There's actually, I, there's, I have a whole book about Hungarian cameras. 
believe it or not, there's a bunch. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but it was within arm's reach. So I, I couldn't yeah. resist. Well, classically, the Soviet cameras are the ones that come out of the 15 Soviet republics. So they're actually the Soviet Union. Uh, the rest is just, I mean, I, you can call them uh, communist country cameras or something. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, they're not Soviet. Not, and not of interest to you? Uh, no, except I take very small interest in some of the Chinese cameras. Just because uh, they, uh, the Soviets gave them the plans uh, to Smena. So there are Smena, there's a, a one to one copy, uh, the Chinese version, and there's also the Lubitil. And there's a FAD too, actually, as well, and some of the Zenith. So I don't, and they're really, really rare. I only have the Smena uh, out of the Chinese ones. But I think just because they're like identical copies, it was just like Chinese markings on them, that those are kind of interesting but so okay that's a topic i, I want to talk about tonight too <laughs> but didn't at least a portion of the chinese camera industry didn't they receive assistance from some of the soviet factories they got they they either bought or they just given them the uh like the the drawings for the cameras just okay. as as like a gesture of goodwill because they wanted to china to be like very close friends with and so yeah. because they're like fellow communist country because there's a chinese copy of the first zenit slr which if you consider a zenit like an slr version of a leica you know it's like they 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 had the leica they made the fed the fed turned into the zorky the zorky turned into the zenit and then now the chinese are making their own copy of of, of a soviet camera so um, you know, that 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 hierarchy of, of DNA that exists in some of the early Chinese cameras. I was holding up a Shanghai 58, which I realize has nothing to do with the Soviet camera, but um, it's the only one I have. So did, did you did you have any of Kurt's Chinese cameras or did you send them all to me? That's what this is. This is one of Kurt's. OK, I think I have like a great wall, one or two of the SLRs. I have pigeons and seagulls. Yeah, I've got at least two boxes of them. I think I did save one of the TLRs. Um, it's not a five goats though. So I know Theo's been looking after <laughs> one of those. Yes. Kurt had, you know, he had an interest in, in the Soviet camera industry. And and I wish he could be here. Cause I think this would have been a show he'd have been really, really interested in. Cause I mean, clearly the guy did have an interest in some of these earlier cameras and two of them that I kind of wanted to show. I figured at some point we get into a gas discussion, but one of the cameras that I never even thought, I would would ever have a chance to, and I've showed this one to Vlad before, but this is called right. the Sport. So this is this is a 35 millimeter SLR camera. Some people, depending on 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 your allegiance, you know, will say the Exacta was the first. The Kina Exacta was the first 35 millimeter SLR, and and that is true if you go by when it was commercially available to buy, because uh, the Exacta did go on sale before this did. But this camera in prototype form existed what two three years before you could get it is that right oh, yeah as gilveta yeah it was called gilveta before so this camera is a 35 millimeter slr it does have a focal plane shutter but it's metal it's like a trap door kind of it doesn't have a cloth shutter and you look down upon it through a like a waist of a finder from the top you know it's got a little knob on the side here which is used for both cocking the shutter and setting shutter speeds really neat little camera and to think that this was the first real attempt at a 35 millimeter SLR and it's a Soviet camera. You'll find a lot of examples of firsts, you know, that the Soviets did. We talked in, in the last episode, I had a section where we talked about mirror lenses. You know, uh, the, the, the guy who actually invented the cat lens for, for telescopes was, was, was Russian. Yeah. Maksuto. 
and that's what I love about the Soviet industry or the Soviet cam industry is, you know, I'm in the United States. There was very little information out here. Uh, in my time doing the Kepler's vault articles for my site, I would just, I would just go through hundreds of old pop and modern photography magazines. And every once in a great while, you'd find this article and you could tell the editors that were writing it were like, gee whiz, look what the commies are doing, you know? And they would write these like whimsical articles about like they'd, they'd get their hands on a Kiev or, or a Fed or something. One of them even had a Leningrad. Like I don't even know how an American magazine in the fifties would get a hold of one of those, but they would write these sort of like, you know, the communists are, are coming up with these cool cameras, you know, they're of course not as good as the Germans, but you know, sometimes that stuff would leak out over here, but I don't think, we really had a grasp for how rich and how thorough and how big that industry was. I mean, the people who aren't um, who are listening to this from home, you can't see Vlad's background. I've been there multiple times before. You could find pictures of Vlad's collection. I mean, for, for the guys on the show looking at his picture right now, that's like a quarter of what he's got. You know, that whole room is filled with cameras on all four sides. He's got a whole other section of his house with cabinets just like that you know, just filled with stuff. And I mean, and you don't even have everything, you know, I mean, I've asked, Hey Vlad, do you have this Far camera? From. He's like, he goes, no, there's only two of those. There's so much that was done there. And like he mentioned earlier, these rare prototypes and stuff that wasn't documented lenses that, sh that shouldn't even be on certain bodies that somebody pieced together. You know, I, I just, it's so interesting to hear these stories about how the fed factory got started, how the government basically said, we need to make our own like us. I love the story of how the Kiev, uh, rangefinder was even made. I've covered it a bunch of times. We don't have to really cover it here too much, but you know, Dresden was the camera capital of Germany before and during the war. And after the war, Germany got split up. East Germany went to the Soviet Union. Well, that's where Dresden was. That's where Zeiss Jena was. So for war reparations, the Soviet Union said, well, you're making some of the world's best cameras and optics. We want to make cameras and optics too. So we're taking it all. Unlike the the feds and Zorkies, which are actual copies, you know, where they, they reverse engineered the Leica and made their own cameras. The Kievs aren't copies. They are genuine contacts cameras. The first of which were built from spare parts. Some of the machinery was moved over. Um, as time went on, that machinery wore down and, you know, they, they didn't innovate. So, you know, the, as the years went by, I think the Kievs got less and less German, but Find a 50s Kiev rangefinder, get it serviced, because let's be honest, the original Zeisses need to be serviced too. But a serviced 50, he's, he's showing a picture of all his Kievs. Uh, find a serviced 50s Kiev rangefinder, and it is every bit as good as as the, the Zeiss Icon contacts are, because it's the same camera. They literally just picked up the factory, moved it to another country, and just kept making them. And they did that until the 80s. And uh, and I, I know you guys know this. I love the history of these the stories behind all these cameras. They're just it's it's so cool. And I, I just love I mean, I Vlad, if I didn't know you, I, I wouldn't know squat like I, I wouldn't have been able to, to publish nearly as much because, you know, for, for 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 you guys, even Theo, Mark and Anthony. I mean, there's so many times I'm like, hey, Vlad, can you translate this for me? Or what do you know about this? Or I'll <laughs> type something up and then I'll give it to him and say, did I get this right? You know, and he'll be like, ah, you're close enough, you know. So, I mean, I it, I, I owe a lot of, of this research I've been able to do um, on my Soviet reviews to you because, you know, you've kind of helped me with with some of those stories. And and that's why it's just so exciting for me to have you here and, and listen to your stories. Thank you. Well, I'm curious about something. 
Vlad, do you actually, when you take pictures, do you shoot them with a, a Soviet camera? Um, he shoots an icon. No. <laughs> I was going to say, we heard about the Nikon, st- Nikon story. Well, I, I sometimes pick up a Soviet camera. I used to shoot uh, quite a few of my cameras, then I kind of picked up a Nikon FM and <laughs> didn't go back. Well, no, I'm not pointing fingers. The reason the reason I ask is I have never taken a picture with a Soviet camera. You're missing out. I've shot yeah. piles of Soviet lenses. And no. I love the Soviet lens. The Jupiter 9 yeah. may be my favorite Soviet, my my favorite portrait lens of all time is a Jupiter 9. I have uh, Helios 44s that were originally made for an SLR in 39 millimeter mount that I adapted right. them to 42 and use them on mirrorless cameras. Yeah, uh, there's just the, 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 the rendering of some of the older Soviet lenses is just really, really cool. The Helios is the, the whole swirly bokeh thing is absolutely ridiculous. You, I don't think you can get that kind of effect anywhere else. Well, I, I, I took it one step farther. I had two of them and I reversed the front element on one. I reversed <laughs> the rear element on the second one. And uh, it they don't focus to infinity, but they sure give you the swirls. Nice. What does the front element reversal do, though? I know about it, the it, rear. Well, the front the front lets it focus closer. It focuses oh. to uh, oh, I think it's uh, maximum focus distance is probably two feet, and okay. uh, minimum is is uh, less than that, but not a lot less. Even someone who has no mechanical skills can can reverse the elements on those lenses. They unscrew very very easily. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, for your first Soviet camera, I'm gonna I'm gonna say something I think Vlad's gonna approve of. Find a Smina eight. I have find I one have of these. Two of them. I have Is two of the them in boxes. Is it the eight or the eight M? I haven't taken them out of the boxes yet. They're they're they can report stuff. They're there are two of them. The eight M is the modernized eight. Literally, it's exactly the same camera. They just basically start, start started making more lighter version of it and a more cheaper version of it. But but yeah, they both excellent. Yes, I've actually seen someone that's pulled the AM lens off and converted it to Leica mount, so enamored with it. So the, the AM, the, the Smino AM, is just an amazing toy to play with, basically. But the results, uh, yeah, it's something you would never expect. I think that was Piero, wasn't it? Pierre. Piero, Piero, he's like Stephen, a Cosmo Photos friend. Yes, yes, it's M lens off. He's a he's a really good technician. Him is is that the guy who's selling all these modifications on eBay? Because there's quite a few of them uh, for sale that you can. They they take off everything. They take off like the Agat lens and they take off all those yeah. hard mounted lenses and they basically put them on like an M42 mounts or like M39. And this is this is a lot of fun. Now I like I know Anthony, you you're, you have a fondness for the Agat 18 and the 18K as well. Uh, the only reason I would not recommend that as a first Soviet camera is those are incredibly finicky. Yeah. To use, you know, loading film in them. I mean, you literally like collapse the camera in half, and uh, they they can be a little bit tricky to use. But the results are definitely worth it. But if if Paul or anybody listening to the show has never shot a Soviet camera, I mean, obviously most people are going to think of the Zenits and the Zorkies. The Zorky Four is a great camera. Uh, the Fed Two, I love the Fed Two. But you know, the the Smena Eight, you can get for peanuts. You could probably buy these by the box still from some Russian or, or Ukrainian seller. And they're so basic, they almost always work. I think they're very comfortable. And if there's one thing, you spoke about this earlier, Vlad, that the Soviet Union did really, really well is make good triplets. 
Soviet yeah. triplet lenses are amazing. I would even argue I've seen better results from some of these three element lenses than I've seen from some Tessars. The Vascod has a, a similar lens on it too. That's just wonderful. The image quality is, it, it's, it's weird. Cause like, it's not like, you know how some lenses can be so sharp and so precise that it, it almost looks sterile, like with no mm. character at all. Like I, I think you can go too far with sharpness. So these aren't quite like that, but they look gorgeous. They render colors, contrast. They don't really have a lot of uh, over-the-top vignetting. You're not going to get swirly bokeh from this. You're just going to get all-around really good lenses. Or I'm sorry, really good images from a fairly basic plastic camera with a triplet lens. And pick up the 8M instead. It's just it's much easier to load okay. and use and... And and they're lighter too than these guys, and they break less. All right. <laughs> well, I don't I don't have an eight M. I but I'll I'll you know yeah the, the I have... eight the older the older form factor which is like the the five six seven eight yeah manas they they're like if you drop them they just like crack and like chip off and uh, the eight M is like you just throw it against let's, the wall. Here, let's line. let's try that and see what happens. No, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> oh my god, it gave me a heart attack here. <laughs> All right, so we've clearly gone into a gas section here. Um, I mean, a, apart from the common Soviet cameras, I think most everybody knows about Mark Faulkner. Haven't heard from you. Uh, you got to have some cool Soviet cameras there that you could share, right? Uh, I have a few. I mean, my my favorite is really is the is the the Kiev. Um, yeah, I've got like, the black version. I've got this one. I've got the you know the little the, when you're talking about the the half frame. You know, I guess they're 18k one. Yeah. Uh. Largely, okay. I've got a couple of I've got a couple of feds which I think shoot better than some of the old Leicas I've got. Uh, they they just seem like they, in all weather conditions, they seem to do better than uh, yeah. some of the old Leicas. You know, one thing that I've I've observed with a, a limited, I'll admit, a limited sample size, but I've seen enough Soviet cameras and Canons and Leicas and Leo Taxes and whatever. It seems like the cloth curtains that are used on Soviet cameras do a better job of holding up today and resisting pinholes. You know, um, Minolta made a 35 millimeter Leica copy simply called the Minolta 35. And I don't think there's a single one of those out there anywhere that doesn't have rotted curtains. They, they just, they turned to dust. I don't know what the heck kind of rubber coating they put, but they did not last. I had my first Leica was actually a Leica 1B. It was like shooting in, into a starry sky projector. There were thousands of pinholes. I had a Canon 2B completely rotted out curtains. But yet I've had, uh, now the, the straps can break. I've seen that, uh, you know, where you, like the curtain completely just falls off the track and it doesn't even move at all. But in terms of pinholes, if you can, if you can get a, a cloth focal plane fed or Zorky and just look, take the lens off, look through it, fire it. If you see it fire, I would be shocked if you have pinholes in it. They, for whatever reason, hold up. The fat twos, <laughs> I always find a bunch of them with really? pinholes uh, because the yeah. people put them down uh, with the lens up, and that Indostar's twenty six, it just burns okay. the hole right through burns it. The hole. Yeah, no, you do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, they were already like that. No, I, I, I actually did did shoot the two. It was awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll acknowledge. Other than user error. I will make a general observation that I believe that uh, the Soviet cloth curtains seem to hold up better on, on average. Yeah. I'm sure there's someone's going to say, Oh, mine's dead, but I, I've had pretty good luck. They're thicker. 
and maybe you know why i have a suspicion like this the soviet the soviet cameras are not as tightly sealed as the western counterparts so they don't like the broad stuff so stuff doesn't rot because there's like air movement inside <laughs> <laughs> so the lubatels are really popular people like to shoot those you know that was wasn't the lubatel a uh originally based off the Fotlander brilliant brilliant yeah brilliant yeah um, which Paul's got a, a bunch of those, so he's yeah. pretty excited to hear that. Well, it's the Komsomolets was based exactly on the mm-hmm. Berlant, and then Dulubitel was the it was basically an evolution of that when they coupled yeah. the lenses. I really like the Kiev 19, that's the one that has the Nikon F mount. Yeah, um, that's one of the more Japanese, and I say Japanese because it looks and feels like a Japanese camera, but it was made in the Soviet Union in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, works really really well i i've i enjoyed using mine um i i love the shutter design of the earlier kiev 10 and 15 it has a focal plane shutter that has a fan but those are not reliable uh to find one of those that works at all is rare but they're still very cool very collectible well the shutters work the meters don't that's the problem Uh, one one camera that i really have had a lot of fun with and it has to be probably one of my best best ones to 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 enjoy is the the little Kiev thirty yeah oh they're fantastic they they are fantastic they they are, they are superb um I just had so much fun with that reliable this thing's built like a tank it's tiny but it's built like a tank and it, and it just just works there's nothing on it that you can look at and say okay that's going to break or or you have to be gentle with it it just it just works properly uh it took the the actual results are astounded me on such a small frame um for for people listening the kev 30 is actually a is it 16 millimeter yeah it's a, 16, uh, it's a minolta 16 copy yeah so it's 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 tiny so and there was a version made which um looks like the john player special cigarette packets which was very popular as well so mark's got one there as well no, and nice. uh, have you shot with yours mark not yet no it uh it's i've been sadly reluctant in shooting any 60 millimeter film for a while so i'll try to get oh, on dude, you, you'll really enjoy this i have to say that i've had better results out of my 30 than i have over any other 16 millimeter camera it, it's actually a lot of fun to shoot and it produces again lenses really great like it's the right lens for 16 millimeter but you do have to put on a fedora hat and you know a yeah. trench coat and, and run around <laughs> and be a spy. Have you compared it to Minolta 16? I've never shot one of the 16 millimeter ones. I was just wondering how they compared the, the Minoltas, those which were they copied from. I haven't actually shot the Minolta yet, so no. I can't compare. Um, Anthony, you've done both, haven't you? No, I've got a Minolta, but it, it doesn't work. It was DOA. I think Bob Bob Rodoloni has like a whole bunch of them for sale. Yeah, and he does the, the camera show. <laughs> well, Usually. you know, you know, I gotta say, I'm surprised that nobody's mentioned the Lomo LCA, which you know is the camera that that you know based on the Cosina uh, CS2, but you know kicked off the whole lomography craze. And I've got like an original uh, Soviet. Would it, would it would it have been Soviet? Or would it have been Russian at that point? Yeah, it was Soviet. It was a, it was 1983, I think. That's when they started making those. I, I've got an original LCA and. It's just a lot of fun. It it always produces an interesting shot. Uh, and then I also like the two half frame cameras uh, that I have. The uh, uh, Belomo, is it Chaika? Chaika, the Seagull? Chaika, yeah. And then also the Fed Micron. 
Um, okay. Both of them are affordable and very capable half frame cameras. Yeah. But I got to tell you, the one Soviet camera that I've run more film through than any other is the Horizon, the uh, original uh, swing lens, not the yeah. plasticky ones, but the metal one. Um, and that camera, I just, it, it, it I produced some fantastic work with that camera. Yeah. And uh, if you're interested in getting into uh, like a swing lens, um, I highly recommend the, uh, the the Horizon. They're like one tenth the price of a wide lux. So oh, absolutely, you, know, you you could you could buy four Horizons, send them all out to Oleg for a CLA, and still come out ahead <laughs> of buying one wide lux. Which, if that breaks, you can't get fixed. <laughs> for some reason, I found the 202, the plastic version, just a little bit nicer to work with because it's the same exact camera, just lighter to carry around. And I've actually lugged it around for like a week in Paris, taking pictures of all the panoramic stuff and like museums. And mm-hmm. it, it came out really nice. Uh, I mean, the uh, the metal one that I had, um, I had it fixed by um, Yuri and Fatka, one of, one of his repair guys, but it was like, uh, it was keep giving me problems all the time because it's like it's, the, it's the, if the actual axle on which the the swing drum sits uh, and a lot of this is kind of like skews sometimes so and it gets starts getting stuck i don't know why and i've had it on a couple of them uh, and plus the the film the, the whatever thing that presses the film sides i've had problems with that too so like i would actually get like blur on one on, on the very edge of the frame for some reason on the metal one the 202 for some reason never gave me that issue you know i've I've had more problems with light leak on 202s and i own both versions and i've owned wide lux and i'm about to buy another one don't ask me why the 202 have had more problems with again light leaks and i find the color better but the original metal version is higher in contrast and sharper Hmm, interesting that's my experience and you know i i think i own four of the original ones right now and two of the the later models that uh you know after munfrotto came in i have one for export and one uh uh that munfrotto was selling in the us and then i have one directly from uh ukraine if i'm not mistaken the the metal uh horizon horizon or horizon that's what it actually says on it uh has the same lens that the the kgb f21 camera actually called the of-28p with the lens yeah it's a 28 right. millimeter it's a triplet soviet triplet it's the same exact lens on those spike yeah. spike cameras they had that were classified you loaned me the ajax and i shot it got some pretty neat shots results oh, from yeah. it but yes uh, the, the horizon is an incredible value uh they they do tend to need some surfacing you know they they may not always fire smoothly um but if you if you're a fan of swing lens the horizon does 58 millimeter wide panoramic images um you know the the x pan ratio is 65 i think the wide lux is 65 millimeter but if you want to go wide you got to go to the the kmz the ft2 which is a really bizarre looking if you didn't know what it was it doesn't even look like a camera it's like it's a rectangular black metal box with like knobs on the top and it shoots 24 this is regular 35 millimeter film it shoots a 24 by 110 millimeter panoramic image i mean it's just you you get 12 exposures on a 32 or sorry 36 exposure roll of 35 millimeter film they're not the easiest to find in the united states i don't think they were all that common i don't think there were a ton made certainly less than the horizons 
and they are a little tricky to load. But um, if you have one and it works and you're willing to go through the effort to load them, uh, they that is truly a camera that makes an image that you, no other camera can do. Like that camera also requires its own special cassette. It does, yes. yes. Yeah, you got so, it. Then the bugaboo for me is everyone I picked up has been missing cassettes. And you know now this talks about 3D printing cassettes. 3D printing, yep. So this this camera was actually constructed by Fedor Tokarev. It's the same guy who did the TT pistol uh, and the the FT2s, and it, it was actually made as an FT1 first. So there's actually three versions: FT1, FT2, and FT3. But only the FT2 was the one that was uh, put put to mass production. Uh, the camera was originally designed to do the uh, pictures of artillery shelling on the battlefield, uh, and then it basically they decided to put it as like a mass-produced uh, panoramic camera but there was the original intent of it and it was based on the that codec um don't remember the name since i'm not into codecs but there's a codec swing lens so there was loosely the panoram yeah it, it has like a little yeah it's like a, it's also a box and there's like a little lens so basically it's lo was loosely based because the reason i know that because it is as Mike holds one up. Oh, that's the one. Yeah. So it, basically, Tokarev's estate was for sale uh, in Russia about maybe six years ago. And they were selling all his personal collection. And, and so the, he had a whole bunch of uh, different prototypes for sale. And some of them were like half-built, uh, like FT cameras. And one of them was like heavily modified Kodak. Uh, with his own invention. So you can kind of see that where he got the idea from. So it was kind of translated in his own. It's a really interesting looking camera too, the FT2. I mean, I call it the, yeah. it looks like an old voltmeter. <laughs> That's what yeah, I it, 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 Sitting on a shelf, unless you were into cameras, you would not know it's yeah. a camera because it just simply doesn't look like one. Some kind of electrical device. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have two, one that I've shot and then I have another one, uh, brand new, or I shouldn't say brand new, but in its original box, really nice shape um i i like them they aren't the easiest to load though you know if you thought i mean it does does it have a bubble level i, th I think they do yeah I don't it does. on top of it. yes it's built in into the little thing getting an image that's effectively 110 millimeters wide level is really hard to do like it's hard to do on any swing lens yeah. but you're shooting an image that's essentially two horizons put together <laughs> Real quick, um, we were talking about half frame briefly. I've never shot a Fed, Fed Micron, but I definitely like the Shikas. I have the Shika 3, great camera. Another triplet that just shoots really, yeah. Mark's got, that's a- uh, Shikas, yeah, they're fine. Yeah, th those are really, really nice. That's the two. The three has like a square shutter release yeah. button on the front, um, but otherwise it's basically the same camera. Very, very nice. The three has the meter, I think, too, on it. Yeah, it's got an uncoupled Soviet- you know, right. Selenium ghost, you know, film speed, you know, meter, we got to figure it all out, but it, it works pretty neat. All right. So real quick, we're, we have about half hour to go in, in recording here. Uh, I thought it might be fun to do Soviet Mythbusters. So, <laughs> so Vlad, I'm going to read off to you a couple myths or common things you hear about Soviet cameras uh, and let us know if it's true or not, or if there's any truth to it whatsoever okay. okay all right so the first one is that there are a bunch of soviet cameras um the lubricant on them is made from animal fat and uh, no it's actually uh a story that uh we've heard from somebody that worked in one of those factories um it was in uh belarus the Belo the Belo the Belo. i don't know how do you say that belarusian or belarusian 
and I, I heard both both versions in English. Uh, but uh, the zinnas they're made in in uh, Vileka, which is basically near Minsk. Uh, this was a second production of Zinnitz after um, uh, Russian factory KMZ. Uh, there was a grandma, and I, I, I think I've told that story in one of the podcasts already, but there was a grandma in the end uh, that the assembly line that was basically doing like quality control. And then one day she quit, and all of a sudden the quality of entire assembly line went down. And they couldn't figure out what's going on. And they, they're calling her and like, like, what did you do in the end of the assembly line to make all the cameras work so smoothly and nicely? She's like, I would rub them with some bacon fat, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I knew the bacon fat would come up at some point. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, this is like this is a popular I, story because I think I, I said that. I, I, I think I told the story on Classic Lenses uh, and it's been following me ever since. Well... <laughs> We are the the remnants of classic lenses before. Right. So, uh, all right. So, so lube from animal fat, bacon fat is confirmed. The second one, I, we well, kind of already. Sorry to interrupt, but no, there is there is well in in on a serious note regarding that. Yes, the Soviet l lubrication was made out of organic fat, though okay. it wasn't because of it was bacon fat, but it was a, a organically based versus uh like uh not like <laughs> synthetic that the German right. cameras used. So that's why it hardened so much. And that's why you find all the Soviet cameras are like very, okay. very, very stiff. But do they smell nice when you, when you, when you heat them up? <laughs> I can't hate bacon. Get some bacon bits in there. Well, spe speaking of that, I had a guy found, find like uh, about 40 Zorki in his oven uh, after like five years, not knowing where they are because he, apparently he wouldn't bake. But uh, <laughs> one day he decided to bake a pizza. And he opens it up, and, the, and he started preheating, and he, he smelled something burning, and there was like a whole bunch of orchids in there. The next one, we kind of already talked about this a little, but um, let's I'll, I'll ask it anyway. But that KMZ cameras built for export were of higher quality. So you kind of already confirmed that earlier, right? Uh, yeah, most of the time, yes. Yeah, okay. One that I hear, I've seen a lot, is that lenses... With the serial number, it starts with zero zero. Were made for VIPs. No, that's, that's not, not true. true. So there's that nothing was... special if you see a lens that starts with zero zero. I, in my experience, I, I found a lot of the export cameras actually have zero zero. So it might have been an export prefix. Okay, there are whole warehouses full of unused Soviet lenses that are still being discovered today. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not anymore, probably. But uh, I've heard a few I've heard a few stories of uh, in the last ten years that that did happen. One guy so, discovered about uh, I think three hundred or five hundred Zenit ETs sealed in boxes. So he just started like taking lenses off okay. and selling them on eBay. <laughs> so when you would see like a Ukrainian seller with like literal piles and piles of the same lens, there's a chance that's where it came from, or maybe a, a repair shop that just ripped all the lenses off uh, some yeah i mean if, if you see they're consistently like the okay. like se sequential serial numbers that, that actually happened too uh then yeah because i had i took the string off but i have like this kia 35a mm -hmm. that was not only its original box but it had string wrapped around it so oh, nice. i assume this was new on new stock somewhere that probably is okay right. when those hit the u.s market mike we had it, it was a handful of people selling them. And for every one you sold, you replaced it four or five times. Oh, jeez. They were not reliable. Okay. But they were very, very, very cool. And they, yeah. they put hurting on the Minox on the Minox 35 market without yeah. question. 
yeah, yeah they're they're li very light leaky but the lens on that thing is ridiculous yeah, it's the really lens is cool. awesome okay one of them we i was going to ask about the orphan children but we already talked about that uh and then the last one is you should never change shutter speeds on a soviet camera until after cocking the shutter not all of them not uh, all of them. like something like a narcissus yeah the zenits now i had a problem some of the old zorkies maybe but it's some like yeah the nurses especially uh is very very if you do that it's done <laughs> but yeah the zorky 4 probably could withstand it easily so the, yeah. the narciss is a 16 millimeter slr with a screw mount it's got a, a interchangeable viewfinders you can get it this has the prism but you could get it with a waist level uh fully flash synchronized it's got a cloth focal plane shutter from half a second to one five hundredth of a second very very cool camera one of the very few 16 millimeter SLRs that I've ever seen. Well, it, it was the smallest 16 millimeter SLR for a long time, I think, until the, the, the Pentax made that little one. Yeah. And I don't know how rare this is, but this one came with a lens adapter that allows you to mount uh, M39 screw mount lenses to it. So uh, I can put. Actually, rare. <laughs> well, if, if it's the original one, it's made out of metal. So here, watch this. I'll yeah. show you. Here is a Narcissus. With a Nikkor 50 nice. millimeter lens on it. Now it only does macro that way, but pretty cool. All right, that's the, that concludes. I couldn't think of any other ones. I have a question to try and check Vlad's knowledge. Go ahead. Fed. Who was Fed named after? And if you can remember that without looking it up, it's Felix Edmundovich Dzerzhinsky. He was basically the head of NKVD. A very sinister uh, name for a very beneficial, uh, I guess, commune of kids. <laughs> but but yeah, uh, but he actually died the year they named that colony. So I guess it was kind of like immemorial. But yeah, uh, yeah there's the basically the head of what you later known as KGB, the founder, the, the Cheka, right? Um, but uh, yeah, I mainly wanted to hear you pronounce it actually because I've only seen it in writing. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely couldn't have done that. Say it again. Say it again, Vlad. What was his name? Felix Edmundovich Dzerzhinsky. Dzerzhinsky. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, did you have a question, Paul? Well, you know, what a lot of people don't realize is that they actually, the Russians actually made the rarest Leica lens ever, ever produced. It's a 50 millimeter 3.5 Sumicron, which, uh, you know, <laughs> the Germans never made. Uh, oh, is that they are, they're in M39 remake? mount? It, it actually says Leica 1913 to 1931. <laughs> Uh, engraved on the wow, side. Wow, that's nice that they told you that. It's got a wonderful metal lens cap that says uh, Leica, <laughs> uh, Sumicron, 35 millimeter. I mean, when you see uh, the, the Germans, they only made 50 millimeter 3.5 Elmars. The Russians actually made a Sumicron 50 millimeter 3.5. So <laughs> it's extremely rare. And uh, I've actually used it. It's a really good lens. <laughs> Very cool. Well, the Indostar 50, yeah, that's a pretty decent one. Is actually, oh, there's Ira. Hey, Ira, sorry, I didn't see you in the waiting room there. We weren't, I wasn't looking anymore. Yeah, I was running late today. That's okay. We're, uh, we have Vlad on, we're talking Soviet cameras. So, uh, I'm sure you got something special. Yeah, oh, yeah, I wanted to show something really special. Um, there's, <laughs> you know, the, you know, the red book, nothing, uh, no pun intended, that big fat red book about Soviet cameras. Prince, uh, Prince, Prince, Al? yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't go away. This is gotta be good. <laughs> I think Vlad saw this already. If you look all the way towards the end of the book, there's a camera called the military camera. Oh yeah. It doesn't have a name. What page was it? It's towards the back. 
Oh, that doesn't help me. Nobody still knows to this day what that thing is. Exactly. <laughs> it's just this military camera. Did you put that viewfinder on it? Yes. You have like this pretty viewfinder. Is the that a white camera originally came like this with the tripod mount on top? If you look in the book, it's up it's upside down like this. Now I don't know, maybe they hung it from something. Because if you hold it upside down, the advanced wheel is right where your finger is. Hmm. So who knows? But I just thought you might want to see something like that. That is very cool. That is neat. Rook, it's kind of appropriate you're here, Ira, because just the other day you showed me a camera that you wanted my opinion on. You had found a Reed camera, a British Reed, which was like their version of the Leica. Um, Everybody said that was a fake. Yeah, well you, well, you didn't know that, though. You're like, I found a prototype Reed 1 and wanted to know my opinion of it. And I looked at it, and I mean, it looks like a Leica 1. And I, I always thought all the Reeds had rangefinders. But where, where my BS, my spidey senses started tingling was... If this was real, it would have been made in the 30s. Um, and it has a very blue lens-coated lens that looks awfully like an Indostar. And uh, whoever took this took the time to sand down the, the Soviet markings and engrave Taylor. Taylor you know, in, in, yeah. It, so, in, you know, it, around the shutter speed, Mark, you're going to have to pronounce it. Le- Leicester? L-E-I? Leicester. Lester, I don't know how. You, yeah, Lester it's, it's England. Reed in Sigrist. Um, it's got the Reed logo engraved into it, but I'm like, boy, that looks Soviet to me. So uh, they've escalated from making fake Leicas to now there's fake Reeds out there. Oh, I saw plenty of fake Leica copies. The best one I still remember was a French Leica copy called the Segem. I've never seen a real one, but the one I saw was absolutely a um, a fed because it had that telltale viewfinder. They, they can't change that, along with the little triangular, uh, I think, rangefinder cam instead of a roller one. Somebody tried to sell me a Fed the other day at a show that had the roller one, and I was like, what is that? It was ah. the opposite. Yeah, what happened is they got a Leica. And they tried. Uh, no, it, it was just repaired, I think. It was strange. It was definitely a Fed, but it was just the insights were really strange. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna test Vlad's knowledge of, uh, of rangefinder couplings. So you guys were talking about on a real Leica and all and almost all the Japanese copies, the coupling arm has a wheel on the end of it for smoothness. And pretty much all the Soviet cameras is just a rigid arm, like a finger. Okay, name one Soviet M39 interchangeable lens rangefinder that actually does have the roller. From the factory, not modified. They're all they all have it. What I, I think there's only one. Would it be the Fat Six TTL? Not the one I'm thinking of. <laughs> the Drug. There you go. Yeah, the Drug. I figured it had to be either the Drug or the yeah. um the Leningrad. All right. Yeah, the right. Leningrad does not. The Leningrad's a solid arm. Uh, but the Drug has. Uh, if you look in there, it has the wheel exactly like a Leica. I mean, I'm spinning it with my finger now, so it's very smooth. I love the Drug. Uh, this camera has camera. it has the trigger film advance in the bottom, like the Canon VT Deluxe, like the like of it does. Um, another thing that I that a feature that this camera has that doesn't really you don't realize it until you pick it up. But the viewfinder is in the center. It's directly above the taking lens. So it, that helps to minimize parallax error. There's almost no parallax error. I still have yet to figure out why lights stuck it off to the side. Yeah. 
So all they did was shift. I mean, the rangefinder window is here on the far side, but we you look at through the center. There's a very bright viewfinder. This thing has a fairly decently large rangefinder patch. It has the projected frame lines for 50 millimeters, and I'm going to guess that's 85, maybe 90. I'm not sure. How much did you shoot it, Mike? I've shot this one once. The shutter does work. The problem it has is the film advance oh, is, okay. is messed up on it. So, like, I'll, I'll get three shots in a row where they're spaced properly, and then 10 of them will overlap. So mine, mine works really well, and I've shot maybe – I've shot quite a few rolls through it. The only problem is the actual – the advance, that little lever in the bottom, it's really, really sharp. So on, on, the, on the second film, I'm like, my hands were actually bleeding. My fingers were oh, wow. bleeding. Yeah, it was, it was pretty brutal. This one's not too bad. It doesn't, it's not very stiff because there's a chain under there that it, it uses yeah. to advance. Mine's like semi-stiff, so, but it works really, really well with shutter and everything else. But <laughs> You you bought a, a Droog for me. Did you get a chance to play with that? Yes, so the shutter uh, doesn't travel all the way. The second curtain okay. just stays kind of open, crack open, and it's it's good on the fast and on, on the faster speeds, but uh, on the slower it just it doesn't okay. close all the way. But but it's actually in a better working shape than I've seen any other drug because Fair most enough. of them, ninety percent of them that I find it don't work at all. Like that thing is jammed. Send that one to me. <laughs> Which one? That one. We'll talk about <laughs> that one, I, I can fix the second curtain for the end. It's fine. I'm all right with that. It's my mine has the overlapping issues as well. So you know we're down, running low on time here. Um, you know, uh, Ira, you just kind of came in here. Uh, so welcome, of course, you're always welcome on the show. So many cool things you have. Does anybody have any questions for uh, for Vlad or Mark, or you want to talk about uh, something else completely? I do. I do have one question. Um, sure. Yeah, as usual, I'm always in awe in terms of Vlad's collection and the way it's displayed. It's just, it, and the way he actually seems to put all the like cameras together. <laughs> that 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 does take a lot of effort. But um, do you do you find that you obviously live in the US uh, now? Do do you find it difficult because you're away from the ex-Soviet countries to actually? find things does is it a disadvantage or or well, do you have a network that's pretty much taking care of that for you um i have a network but obviously uh russia is closed right now but there's quite a few things that are coming from ukraine but interesting enough interestingly enough the most rare cameras i bought in us just because people don't know what it is and just basically dumping it off but right. uh i've my most my most like priciest and like the most valuable in terms of like collector's value the stuff that you don't see or like or some prototypes that were found in the united states <laughs> vlad t tell us real quick the story about those two um the, what is it the tvs tsvs yeah prototypes? real quick yeah. Do, do that story real quick so the uh, the guy who bought it he's a long time member I'm out on my forum and uh so that 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 this is a camera that basically looks like a fad with a contacts mount on it uh, it's a very unique camera, and uh, nobody knows. Um, it was a lot of legends going around where they come from. Uh, like people, there were like a bunch of different uh, things, like like people saying there was made some factory in Almaz, and then but then, in when I first held one, um, it was maybe like about 15, 17, 15 to seventeen years ago, and it felt nothing like a Soviet camera. It was like very smooth. The the all the mechanics like basically screamed the German camera to me. So that was that's why like it was very doubtful that some kind of unknown unknown Soviet factory was making these. 
So uh, there was always suspicion that was it was coming from Germany. And then finally, uh, we found a book. So the TSVVS stands for Topographical Service, like a military topographical service for Soviet Union. For some reason, the, these cameras were only given to like high-ranking officers, but nobody knew where they came from. Somebody found a book uh, that was written on the history of topographical service and found a little excerpt saying that in right after the war, there was a factory in Hildebrand, the Hildebrand factory in Freiburg, Germany. They made cameras based on uh, like for Soviet order for the topographical service. And then and then basically it, it we deduced that this, these were the cameras, but nobody had any kind of proof to it. And then I had one of the longtime forum, forum members all of a sudden posted two of these cameras with uh, absolutely no writings on them. So they're just kind of blanks. But there, there's were those were for sure those TSVVS. Those were like the Fed-looking cameras with a the basically Leicas with a context mount, which is really strange. Didn't you say these things were just sitting on a shelf in like a pawn shop? Yeah. So this was this was absolutely he had no knowledge whatsoever about this other book. So this was before that. He went to Freiburg, Germany for vacation. He went to the antique store in Freiburg, Germany, and this were sitting in an antique store and the shelf for like about 50 euros each. So he's like, what are these? And the guy's like, oh, you don't want them. They don't work. So he's like, no, how much? He's like, 50 euros. And so he bought them. And, uh, and, and then eventually um, he was raising some money for his uh, children. And so he he decided to sell them to me just because, I guess, nice. he enjoyed the forum. So I, I ended up buying those things, those those two cameras from him. Very and, cool. And they're, pro they're basically prototypes for the TSVVS cameras because they're blank. One of them is actually very shiny polished chrome, which I've never seen a, uh, never seen a version like that. Of the TSVVS, mostly they kind of like a dull chrome with like a star on top. It says TSVVS, but this is like very interesting. Vlad, do you have any idea why the viewfinder is so damn tiny on those things? Yeah, all the fads and like all the old Leicas. I mean, so they're all based around like a Leica two base, and they were all tiny and. No, but this is like one quarter the size of a regular Leica viewfinder of the same period. Yeah. I have no idea why they like that. To be honest, I mean, I think it's just. Uh, it, this also this was yes this was a German factory but I don't think this is a factory that actually manufactured cameras before to be honest uh, mm -hmm. so maybe it was some kind of design oversight that because of the inexperience or maybe some kind of limitation but it is very interesting uh, they come like that I mean I think there's only like about a thousand or a little bit over that amount of these cameras made well between you Vlad and Ira I've seen three of them <laughs> in, yeah in person. There's not a lot of them, and they're all numbered, so I haven't seen yeah. an, a number higher than like fourteen hundred or something like that on those. So it's a quite an interesting story. It was a if you go to your surf photo forum, there's there's been like so many threads over the years and debating on the origin of this. It's like yeah. people were just it's like it's like a very uh, epic investigation. <laughs> but you know, to to kind of circle back to Theo's question about how easy it, or difficult it might be for for Vlad to get stuff, I'll reflect back to something Ira said in one of the previous episodes you were on, the more people you know, the more things you have access oh, to, you know, sure. like this, this group of people from this podcast, the Facebook group, the old classic lenses podcast, your website, my website, uh, Ray, you know, I would have never in a million years come across a Konica F if it wasn't for you, you know? And um, I, I think that uh, I'll, I'll get a little sentimental here again. Um, but that's, that's one thing that's great about this hobby is, you know, everybody, whether you're a Soviet collector, whether you like rare prototypes, whether you're into toy cameras, you know, sub minis, you know, Robert's into Nikons. And there's just so many people that are willing to share and and, and give that information. And I mean, I, I can't say 
I don't know what it's like to collect vintage guitars or something. I don't know if it's the same way for that too, but you know, I've, I've just found so many people willing to share, help people find rare stuff. Maybe you find something that's cool, but it's like, I don't, this isn't my thing. I'm going to pass it along to somebody that I know is going to appreciate it. I've seen Vlad's collection in person. I've seen Ira's and right here, those, those two are the most impressive collections I've seen, you know, Ira, just the sheer volume stuff you have, but Vlad, the presentation, Theo, you ever come to Chicago, you, you got to get over there. Vlad, Vlad's an awesome host. He, in addition to a good cook, he's a great cook. He'll feed you <laughs> grasshoppers. He's got an excellent collection of bourbons and scotches. Uh, he's got a wicked, awesome sense of music. He has, he likes some great bands. Have I just been invited to Vlad's house by everybody but Vlad himself? Ah. No, I, I, everybody's always welcome. I, I, I just couldn't get a word in, but yeah, I was going to say. Sorry. You're in Chicago area. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. It's cool. He, cause he, he got out like an old Soviet TV that you gutted and put like an LCD or LED panel in there. Um, oh, wow. you, you've got, you've got just cool stuff everywhere. Like you'll be in his basement and there's an easement window. You'll just look outside and he's got like a little monument outside with like little figurines and decorations and stuff like that. It's just, it's so cool. It's all Soviet themed. I mean, it's just, it's historically themed to match the collection really. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'll stop raving about someone else's house. So we're, we're down to the last 10 minutes. Um, anybody else have any questions or anything you want to bring up? We lost Anthony. He's a little under the weather, so uh, hopefully he feels better soon. Mark Beadle, uh, great to, to have you on the show. I know it's the middle of the night. He's at work. So um, I, I saw his video come and go throughout the show. I don't even know if he's still there, but I'm, I'm glad to have him on. Uh, someone else that loves these cameras as much as, as I think a lot of us do. Um, hopefully between the people on the show, Theo, you said you didn't think you'd have a lot to contribute. Um, I don't know the people listening to the show, how, how much, how many people are already interested in Soviet cameras that are listening or maybe just didn't. Uh, but maybe we've we've spoken about a couple different cameras that are worth checking out. You know, if if you still have that very antiquated belief that Soviet cameras are inferior, they certainly did make some cheap ones. They certainly made some rudimentary cameras, but there's a lot of great ones. There's a lot of innovative cameras that are very, very cool. Their lenses are great. Pretty much anything with a triplet was usually an economically priced camera like the Sminas. Uh, the Chaikas are great shooters. The Agat 18, 18K is awesome. I love the Kiev uh, 17 and 19 that I mentioned earlier. They have the later Zenits that use the K-mount. Uh, the Lubatels are nice. They're basic, but they shoot really nice images. They made 16 millimeter cameras. There was, I don't think they ever made film for it, but there was at once a, a Polaroid instant camera um, the Soviet Union made. Uh, you have the Moskva folders, which are copies, I think, of the Super Icontas, which are quite good. The East Coast, too. Yeah, the Iskra, that's a great one too. You let me borrow one of those. That's It's got a coupled rangefinder, automatic exposure counter on it. You know, a, a little bit hard to find in good working order, but like any camera that era with proper lubrication and, you know, a CLA, they're, they're wonderful shooters. They really are. To find somebody who may, who takes the Iskra lens, the Industar 58, I think, on it and like puts it on a, like a M39 mount or something or, or M40, even an M42 mount. Because yeah. that lens is probably one of the best lenses I've seen in a Soviet camera. That and uh, the Helios 77 M4, that lens is my primary shooter for anything portrait. It's it's swirly and it's a little razor sharp. I mean, it's like it's really rare combination because mm -hmm. the 44s are kind of like soft. 
Sound Salmon and Forest. I know Mark Mark really likes that last dude. Didn't you shoot that one, Mark? Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, it's it's got even more swells than a forty-four two, which I find hard to believe, but it does have it, and it has the sharpness and abundance. It's truly a fantastic lens and a great recommendation. Yeah, they're hard to find, though. I mean, they're lately they're very, very scarce. And if if you find them, they're, they're pretty pretty pricey for a Soviet lens. One last question, uh, and then we'll go because I'm surprised I didn't think to ask it sooner. But if you do have a Soviet camera and want to get it repaired. Uh, you mentioned Fedka already. I mentioned Oleg uh, in Slovakia. But uh, do you know of any other options in the U.S. or anybody that you would trust sending a Soviet camera to for repair? In U.S.? Uh, no, but I think uh, Mark uses Roger Lean in U.K. Uh, it's kind of, he's, he's, he's completely analog. So you, you, I think, Mark, can, how do you get a hold of him? You have to, uh, you have to be one of the lucky few to have his phone number. It doesn't okay. like to be advertised too much either. He's a he's a he's okay. a quaint guy, but he's very good. Yeah, he's really really good from what I heard. And he he's the former TOE London technician, right? Yeah. Well, we'll have to, we'll try to get as much as we didn't do much of the Instagram with the last episode. Uh, that's difficult for us to do sometimes, but we'll try to make sure we get as many of these cameras we showed or talked about on the show on the Instagram and the Facebook page for you guys to see. Uh, I, I had a great time, Vlad. Thank you so much for coming. Mark, thank you for coming in the middle of the night while you're working. Uh, Ray, Mark Faulkner, Ira, it's always great to have you guys. Um, this was super fascinating. I love the Soviet camera industry. The fact that we've talked about it so often on the show and never dedicated an entire episode to it. Uh, I'm, I'm amazed it took us this long to do it. So I wanted to say thank you guys. We don't quite yet know exactly what we're doing for the next episode, although um, I do have kind of a theory as to what we're going to do, but we do have some exciting episodes coming up soon. The next show will be recorded in two weeks. So that would be Monday, October 16th. We'll be recording episode 57. I hope to get this episode out hopefully by the end of this week so you guys can listen to it. I wanted to say thank you guys for everybody who listened to our last episode, which ironically, even though it was our last episode, was our most listened to episode in the first week of any episode we've ever had. So clearly our break between season two and season three did not slow down your appetite for the world's best, only fastest growing open source film photography podcast. Uh, thank you guys for coming and everybody have a great night. Good night. Thank you guys. Have a nice night, Thanks, gentlemen. Good night, all. Thank you. You know what the problem is when we get Vlad on? I, I just get this Soviet camera gas every time. Really strong because he's got yeah, he's got such a great collection. It just he does. it just drives you straight away. Yeah. It's a shame the secret police took Anthony away though. <laughs> <laughs> Comrade Anthony, Comrade Anthony is being regrooved.